Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode two of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. And today, in honor of National PTSD Awareness Month, I'm going to be talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And I decided to talk about PTSD today, not just because it's PTSD Awareness Month, but also because there are a number of myths and faulty assumptions out there about PTSD that sadly often lead to a whole lot of unnecessary suffering. So my goal for today and next time is to dispel some of these misconceptions while also instilling hope in those of you who are listening who either have PTSD or who care about or work with people who do have it. Before moving on, though, I want to circle back to the first episode. And in that episode, I talked about what anxiety is and how exposure or intentionally approaching objectively safe but anxiety-provoking situations without avoiding in any way can be an incredibly effective way to overcome excessive fears and anxiety. And what I want to stress here is that exposure is not meant to be used in situations that are clearly dangerous. So for example, I would never ask someone to walk down a dark alleyway at three in the morning because that's just not safe. But I might ask someone to walk down an alleyway in a relatively safe neighborhood during the day, say at 10 in the morning or three in the afternoon, if that would be anxiety provoking for them. And this is important, this is something I wanted to clarify, because the goal of exposure is to help recalibrate the internal alarm system that we talked about last time, so that we aren't feeling the need to respond to each and every false alarm that sounds within us. But we do still very much want and need to be able to respond to the alarms that go off when we are faced with actual danger. And so I'd never want to get rid of these with treatment, right? I would never want to put someone in harm's way or in a situation that is objectively high risk or unsafe. And while just about everything that we do in life comes with some risk, when I talk about exposure, I'm talking about approaching anxiety-provoking situations that most others would consider to be fairly low risk. And If I wouldn't be willing to do an exposure myself, then I wouldn't ask or recommend for you or anyone else to do that exposure. 
Okay, with that said, I want to shift over to talking about PTSD. And specifically, I'm going to talk about what PTSD is and isn't today and what tends to drive the symptoms of PTSD. And then in the next episode, I'll talk about the rationale for exposure-based treatment for PTSD, as well as what this treatment entails. So to begin, I want to talk about the traumatic stress piece of PTSD, because this is something that often throws many people off. And this is because these words, traumatic and stress, are ones that most of us use fairly loosely. So for instance, it's not uncommon for people to describe things like losing a job, getting divorced, or making a social blunder as being traumatic. I know I sure have. And just about all of us feel stressed at times. So it makes sense that we might conclude that anyone who has experienced some type of big life-changing stressor that they perceive as traumatic and that they are struggling to adjust to must have PTSD. But when we talk about traumatic stress and what constitutes a trauma that can give way to PTSD, we're talking about something much more specific. According to the most recent version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, what we call the DSM-5 for short, in order for a diagnosis of PTSD to even be considered, a person must have been exposed to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence. So even though we use the term traumatic somewhat subjectively in our culture, when thinking about the types of traumas that can lead to PTSD, we use a much more narrow and objective definition. And examples of events that would meet this first criterion include experiencing or witnessing things like physical assault or abuse, sexual assault or abuse, serious accidents, life-threatening medical events, natural disasters, human-caused disasters such as mass shootings, combat, and torture. In addition, this first criterion also includes learning that one of these traumas occurred to a close family member or close friend, as well as experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to the aversive details of one of these traumas in the course of one's professional duties, as a first responder or police officer might. That said, just because someone has experienced or witnessed one of these events does not necessarily mean that that person will go on to develop PTSD. And this is critical to understand because we often assume that if someone is struggling with their mental health following a trauma, that they must have PTSD. But this just isn't the case. In fact, Although roughly 70% of adults in the U.S. have experienced one or more traumatic events, lifetime prevalence rates of PTSD are much lower and hover around 6 to 18% of the U.S. population. So again, trauma exposure alone is not enough to warrant a diagnosis of PTSD. So this brings us to the question of why it is that some people who experience a trauma go on to develop PTSD while others don't. 
And although there are many pieces to this puzzle, one piece that often gets overlooked is the nature of the trauma that a person experiences. So generally speaking, rates of PTSD are much higher following interpersonal traumas or traumas where another person intentionally caused the trauma compared to non-interpersonal traumas. So to give an example of what I mean here, over 50% of sexual assault survivors go on to develop PTSD, but only about 2 to 3% of people who experience a natural disaster develop PTSD. And I'll talk about at least one reason why this might be the case shortly. But for now, it's worth noting that it's those interpersonal traumas, such as rape, childhood sexual and physical abuse, and combat, that tend to be the most likely to result in PTSD. Another point of confusion that I'd like to clarify here surrounds the timing of diagnosis, or how soon after a trauma someone can be diagnosed with PTSD. And I think this is a little murky, at least in part, because most people actually have just about all of the symptoms that we consider to be symptoms of PTSD in the first few days and weeks after a traumatic event. And I know we haven't gone over the symptoms yet, but if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense that people might struggle right after a trauma because there's now this new horrible memory that resides in people's brains. And each time they encounter some sort of reminder of the trauma, for example, someone who looks like their perpetrator, this memory gets activated, leaving them feeling anxious and as though they are in danger once again. And as you can imagine, this can be really scary and frustrating for people because there are often a number of internal and external stimuli or cues present during a trauma that can later come to serve as triggers for the memory of the trauma and the sense of danger that it evokes. And these triggers often leave people feeling intensely anxious in the days and weeks following a trauma. To illustrate what I mean here, imagine there's a man, let's call him Greg, He was physically assaulted and robbed at gunpoint by three young men while listening to music as he walked to his car after a long day at work. After this incident, as you can imagine, there's a good chance that Greg is going to find a number of innocuous cues that were present before, during, and after the physical assault to be highly triggering. So for instance, although the assault happened at night when few others were on the street, He might now feel really anxious when walking around his office, even at lunchtime when lots and lots of people are out and about getting their lunch. He might also feel anxious when around young men, when carrying his briefcase, when working at his desk, when sitting in his car, or when listening to music, even though these were likely things that he did without any problem before the physical assault. Now, the first few times that Greg encounters these reminders of the assault, he's likely, again, to feel really anxious. But if he allows himself to keep approaching these reminders, he'll learn with time that these reminders aren't actually dangerous. 
And the same thing will happen with the memory too, if he allows himself to think about the assault when reminded of it. So with time, Greg will discover that the memory itself can't hurt him, no matter how distressed it leaves him feeling. And if he allows himself to think about it when it comes up or when it's triggered in some way, he'll give himself the opportunity to process what happened and to think about it from his current perspective rather than from the lens that he had when he was being jumped by those guys and felt terrified and helpless. And each time that he is reminded of the assault in this way, some really powerful corrective learning occurs, which over time will help lift his trauma-related symptoms. And what's encouraging is that this is actually what happens for most people. So these post-trauma reactions really do most often resolve on their own. In fact, research has shown that the majority of people's PTSD-like symptoms tend to remit naturally within the first three months following a trauma. And so although PTSD can be diagnosed as early as one month post-trauma, as a clinician, I tend to hold off on diagnosing and treating PTSD until a person is three months or more post-trauma, given that natural recovery so often occurs in that first three-month window. Now, at this point, you're likely wondering what gets in the way of this natural recovery. In other words, why is it that some people go on to develop PTSD and others don't? And we've already talked about how uh, the fact that rates of PTSD are highest among those who experience some sort of interpersonal trauma. And what I want to talk about now is the two main factors that tend to maintain and exacerbate post-trauma reactions leading to the development of PTSD, regardless of the type of trauma that someone experiences. So the first of these factors is avoidance. And there are two main ways in which people who have experienced a trauma tend to avoid. So first, it's really common for trauma survivors to avoid thoughts, memories, and feelings about their trauma. And second, it's also common for people to avoid objectively safe but feared external cues, such as people, objects, situations, or places that resemble the trauma in some way or that serve as reminders of it. So if we return to our example of Greg, imagine for a minute that rather than returning to his normal daily life after the assault, that he were to quit his job and stop going out of the house altogether in an effort to avoid memories of the assault as well as the possibility of being assaulted again. As you can likely see, this avoidance, though completely understandable, would really get in the way of natural recovery unfolding and would likely keep Greg's post-trauma symptoms alive and well. And this ties into what I talked about in the first episode, which is that efforts to avoid certain thoughts, feelings, and memories, whether trauma-related or not, usually only backfire and cause those very same thoughts, feelings, and memories to pop up even more intensely. And this is 
in part because we are wired to process the things that happen to us. And this processing is critical to our survival and is what enables us to grow and learn to differentiate between what's safe and what's not. And most of the time, this processing happens pretty automatically and enables us to understand our world so that we can have some sense of safety and predictability in our lives. But the thing about traumatic events is that they rarely make any sense at all and are typically accompanied by some pretty intense emotions that make them unusually difficult to process. And when we try to avoid traumatic memories and reminders, we don't give ourselves a chance to even attempt to process what happened to us. And so our brains keep throwing memories our way in an effort to get us to reflect on what happened and what that means for us now. In a way, this need for processing that we have is like the annoying alarm that sounds in a car if you put a heavy box in the passenger seat and try to drive without first buckling the seatbelt on the passenger side. And while you could, in theory, choose to continue driving while trying to ignore the beeping sound or blasting music to drown it out, if you want the noise to stop, you have to address what's causing the sound to go off in the first place, right? You need to take a minute to stop driving and buckle the seatbelt or move the box to the back seat or the trunk. And the same is true of trauma memories. If we want them to stop intruding on our minds at all hours of the day, we have to allow ourselves to think about and process what we experienced. And if we don't, if we keep pushing memories away and avoiding things that remind us of the memory, then we're going to incorrectly conclude that these memories and reminders are either intolerable or unsafe in some way. And that's going to lead us to develop PTSD. Now, the second factor, in addition to avoidance, that maintains post-trauma reactions is the presence of unhelpful thoughts and beliefs about oneself, others, and the world. So, for example, after trauma, people often view themselves as being incompetent and weak. And it's also really common for people to believe that they can't trust others and that the world is completely dangerous in the immediate wake of a trauma. And this is especially true following interpersonal traumas, which likely explains why rates of PTSD are highest for those traumas that were caused by another person. It makes sense, right? It might be harder to trust others if someone has broken that trust and traumatized you. Fortunately, however, regardless of the type of trauma that someone experiences, these beliefs tend to shift when people begin to approach trauma memories and reminders. And this is because these exposures help people realize that they actually are competent, that most people can in fact be trusted, and that most of the time the world is fairly safe. But when people continue avoiding after a trauma, they don't get a chance to disconfirm these beliefs. And so these beliefs continue to loom large. All right, now that we've talked about the factors that maintain post-trauma reactions, let's move on to talking about the symptoms of PTSD that can develop when natural recovery fails to occur. Uh, 
And rather than rattle off all 20 of these symptoms at once, I'm going to break them into clusters or groups of symptoms in order to make this long list of symptoms a little easier to digest. So let's start with the re-experiencing symptoms, which are sometimes thought of as the hallmark symptoms of PTSD. This cluster includes unwanted intrusive thoughts and memories of the trauma, nightmares about or related to the trauma, intense emotional and physical reactions to trauma reminders, and flashbacks of the trauma where someone feels as though they're back at the time when the trauma was occurring and they don't realize that they're actually in a safe place in the present. And these re-experiencing symptoms, again, these are ones that just about everyone experiences right after a trauma, and they tend to be really distressing and pull for people to uh, try to avoid these symptoms. And so this gives way to that second cluster of symptoms, the avoidance cluster, which as we already discussed, includes avoidance of memories, thoughts, and feelings about or related to the trauma, as well as avoidance of trauma reminders. So things like people, places, conversations, activities, objects, or situations. And when people have these re-experiencing symptoms and they're trying to go out of their way to avoid these symptoms, this can give rise to a number of changes in arousal and reactivity. So this third cluster of symptoms includes difficulty falling and staying asleep, hypervigilance or being excessively on guard and alert, exaggerated startle responses, difficulty concentrating, an increase in irritable behavior and angry outbursts, and reckless or self-destructive behavior. And finally, it's not uncommon for people with PTSD to experience some pretty significant negative changes in their thoughts and mood. And this is the fourth cluster of symptoms. This set of symptoms includes an inability to recall certain aspects of the trauma, negative beliefs about oneself, others, and the world, thoughts of blame, decreased interest in meaningful activities, feeling cut off or detached from others, an increase in what we often think of as negative emotions, so things like fear, horror, anger, guilt, and shame, as well as difficulty experiencing positive emotions. All right, I know that's a lot of information to take in, but I wanna go over just a few more things before wrapping up for today. So the symptoms that I just listed are the ones that you'll find in the diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And you can expect to see some combination of these symptoms in individuals who meet criteria for the disorder. And these are the symptoms that can be found not only in individuals who have PTSD stemming from one discrete trauma, say a car accident or a rape, but also in those who meet criteria for the disorder and who have more extensive trauma histories or what some might consider to be complex PTSD. So for instance, for uh, people who were abused as children over the course of many, many years. That said, I wanna also note here that you don't need to have all 20 of the symptoms I just listed in order to meet criteria for PTSD. In fact, a diagnosis of PTSD only requires one re-experiencing symptom, one avoidance symptom, 
two symptoms from the increased arousal and reactivity category, and two symptoms from the changes in thoughts and mood category. And because of this, there's a wide range in the severity of symptoms that people who are diagnosed with PTSD experience. For instance, someone who only has one re-experiencing symptom once or twice a week is going to look and feel very different from someone who is having all five of the re-experiencing symptoms multiple times per week. But what's exciting is that evidence-based treatments for PTSD are highly effective regardless of one's trauma history, like regardless of how how many times someone's experienced a trauma, and regardless of someone's current symptom severity. And with that in mind, I'm going to stop here for today, but I hope that this was helpful and look forward to talking in the next episode about the leading treatment for PTSD, which is a highly effective exposure-based treatment called prolonged exposure therapy. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alissajared.com.